Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kia ora, Dave. Um, how, how are you? Uh, morena, Joe. Yep, no, all, all rearing to go on this Friday morning and get this over and done with. <laughs> the, the Friday or the, or the clinical snippets? The week. The week, the week. Okay, right, right. The, um, uh, I'm glad it's not the clinical snippets. We, we enjoy this, don't we? Yeah, no, they're always great fun. It's always yeah. great fun. Okay, let's uh, let's um, uh, launch into Head it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the first one is really just, um, I, I had a patient the other day that came in with um, quite a significant bleeding nose who was on Dabigatrin, and I floundered slightly before I found the, the guidance on management of, of the situation. Uh, so there were guidelines put out by BPAC in 2018 on um, mild bleeding in patients on dabigatrin or rivaroxaban mm. um, and the um, so that's I've, I've put a link to the guidelines in the um, clinical snippets they're yeah. quite straightforward they do cover more significant bleeding as well and are probably helpful in terms of if you're not sure whether this is going to progress or not and and he might need to go he or she might need to go to ed they, they outline the blood tests that you should be doing in case reversal is required, as well as the um, initial treatment. Uh, so the, the treatment essentially is um, your standard epistaxis treatment, for, if it's epistaxis, which is your compression, et cetera. Uh, but tran- oral tranexamic acid, uh, the usual dose is a gram three, a gram three times a day uh, for three or four days. And uh, also topical application, uh, if you can be bothered of gauze swabs soaked in tranexamic acid, um, is that available? Uh, well, you can uh, you, you can get the uh, it is available in ampules. Right. I'm just not okay. sure how available it is to to you to me as a as a GP whether I have yeah. to pay for it or how how I would best access it. Um, but interestingly, I mean, I just use the standard what I generally use, which is a bit of adrenaline and and um, yeah. uh, antibiotic ointment on some ribbon gauze. Yeah. But the um, I just looked into this a bit further, and, and apparently tranexamication is, is at least as good as um, as adrenaline for when you've got bleeding, even from uh, abra- you know, um, significant abrasions or lacerations in patients on these NOACs. Right, okay. You can actually, you can actually soak a gauze in tranexamic acid and put it over the area and then apply pressure, uh, and it can be quite effective in that situation. Nice. Uh, but certainly... The uh, more significant bleeds require in-hospital management. Um, there's a reversal agent available for dabigatrin, rivaroxaban, and epipixaban. There isn't one available in New Zealand, but there is one in the world. Um, it's, it's been approved by the FDA. Um, and just delaying the next dose of dabigatrin or rivaroxaban may be sufficient when the bleeding's mild, uh, mm. but that's a really case-by-case basis decision to be made. Oh, that's great. I mean, I, I, I was unaware of that and I would have just, you know, got people leaning forward, squeezing on their nose, using an ice pack after five minutes and then packing the nose. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have thought about the tranexamic acid. So that's that's brilliant. It's interesting. It's used 
seems to be used hugely in paramedics by paramedics in the UK at least. So if there's any any major trauma where there might be a pelvic fracture, for example, they give IV tranexamic acid on the roadside. Wow. Uh, according to the TV um, re- reality shows that I watch anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the best source of evidence-based yes. medicine I've always found, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so second thing I came across, this is from the uh, a recent issue of the GP Research Review, the Pediatric Research Review. Uh, and it was a study, um, published study, looked at five or 600 kids uh, with and without uh, antibiotic prescriptions during the first um, uh, year or so of life and looking at vaccine-induced antibody levels to several vaccines. Uh, and what the study found was that there was a, a direct correlation between use of antibiotics in those age groups and development of vaccine-induced antibody levels. Uh, so that found that, in fact, um, antibody levels were below protective levels much more commonly in children that have been given antibiotics in not, at nine and 12 months of age, and that each antibiotic course reduced pre-booster antibody levels. So that was uh, by between 5 to 11% uh, for pre-booster antibody levels, that's after the initial course, and post-booster levels by 12 to 21%, depending on which vaccine you're looking at. So really quite significant uh, findings. Wow. I mean, uh, so that's, it's, so uh, the, ca- the caveat really is, do the antibody levels have any relation to actually protecting you from the disease? disease. So is, the, yeah. is there evidence that kids who've had um, antibiotics uh, at that in that stage of life so that's sort of nine and 12 months uh, le- are more prone to measles it didn't i didn't carry it through to that i mean it would be more of a retrospective study yeah, so the, yeah. the, the kids haven't progressed to that but they i mean they they have they have these figures which which determine whether the antibody level is thought to be protective or not yeah. it was certainly below that level but whether that translates into incidence of the disease or not, I guess, is another matter. But the, the pediatric, pediatrician who had um, reviewed the study, his comment was, this is the first study of this type that I'm aware of that has demonstrated the negative impact that antibiotics have on vaccine antibody levels to below protective levels in very young children. This occurred across the board and has certainly now influenced my antibiotic prescribing in young children. So that was his comment, which I guess, again, was reasonable for us to perhaps take on board and, and you know, think about maybe the ears don't need the antibiotics for for yet another reason yes yeah the yeah absolutely it's another as you say another another sort of uh weight on the uh, avoid or delay antibiotics um you know only use them where they're necessary but yeah in, a very interesting study but as you say a, a, a um retrospective one in in five years time looking back at that population would be interesting to see whether the uh, actual instance of disease was any difference. Um, the third one, again, came out, I, I put it out here, just an, another recent issue I've had with a patient coming in who knew before I did about server, which is um, uh, shoulder injury uh, related to vaccine administration. So it's a now recognised condition, uh, which seems to relate primarily to the vaccination being given slightly too high and causing a an irritant bursitis in the oh, shoulder. Yeah. So the patient yeah. comes in with, with what looks to be almost a, either a frozen shoulder or you know, a significant shoulder bursitis, which is 
related time-wise to the vaccine administration and there's no history of injury to account for the yeah for the symptoms um and it's uh so basically so it's vaccines administered to the shoulder joint or bursa rather than the deltoid muscle oh heavens uh, and it can cause quite a significant disability uh and the main symptoms of server are persistent shoulder pain limited range of motion uh and the key to distinguishing it from symptoms that typically begin uh, from um unrelated bursitis unrelated to the vaccine are symptoms typically begin within 48 hours of vaccine administration and they tend not to improve with over-the-counter analgesic medication gosh you'd have to be pretty high up on the shoulder to give the you the would. vaccine into the shoulder the bursa yeah, but but in fact when i look at the i mean i put a link to one one article in canadian family physician on the on the condition and it's not it's not rare Oh, wow. um, and I guess again, so it's it's not a reactive arthritis to the to the um, um, to inflammation caused by the vaccine. It's that it's the it's the actual administration of the vaccine into the shoulder joint because the yeah. bursa is connected into the shoulder joint. That, that's right, and it seems it could be it could also be very close to the bursa, so like an irritant right. bursitis, yeah, or, or within the bursa itself. Um, so it is it's yeah it's not as uncommon as you think, and I, and I suspect why it's become more common in recent times a is because we've been giving a huge number of vaccinations with the um with the covid uh issue and i and i and i would imagine if you've you know been giving vaccinations all day and you're a recently trained vaccinator and you're tired you know maybe the needle does creep up a bit higher you do with your eyes closed that's right yeah. <laughs> um but this is a it's a, an injury that is um likely to be accepted by acc as a treatment injury claim if there's convincing evidence that that it was related to the um to the vaccination mm. and i've just put a few um reminders here on treating the on um, completing the acc an acc treatment injury claim which requires a separate form to be completed at the same time as your acc 45 um of course it does of course it does and <laughs> it's not it doesn't seem to be uh i had to do one the other day and i couldn't find it within within the pms you know no. externally to access it but it's easy enough to access on uh online and you can actually i just download it don't print it off download it keep it on the computer fill it in online so it's editable so you can put in all the details type in all the details and then save it uh, and then bring it into the patient PMS, into the patient record that way. So it's um, easily emailable to um, ACC and whatever else you need to do with it. Um, That's great. So, I mean, and yeah, maybe we should ask the um, PMSs to, to link directly to it. Well, that one and the concussion referral forms would be very handy, I should think. Yes. Yeah. Um, next one, number four. So it's uh, uh, still indirectly related to COVID, but it's just... Um, to make sure that everybody's aware of the listed contraception advice with uh, molnupiravir. Yes, scary stuff. Scary, yeah. So looking at the FDA, so I just wanted to think that this wasn't just a New Zealand thing, and the FDA have exactly the same recommendations, although they, in their, in their statement, they do emphasise that this is being very cautious because it has been some evidence of embryo toxicity with um, molnupiravir, but... It's not yet known, you know, to what degree, whether risks outweigh benefits, etc. But currently, the the recommendation from New Zealand formulary is that uh, we need to assess our patient's pregnancy status before initiating the drug. Patients of childbearing potential should be counselled counselled about abstaining from sex or using reliable contraception for the duration of therapy, 
and for up to four days after receiving molnupiravir, that's females. And the, the really important one, or, or one that I, that I keep thinking, oh, who knows about this? Uh, males mm. with sexual partners of childbearing potential should use a reliable method of contraception during treatment and for at least three months after the last dose of molnupiravir. Yeah. So that's the male receiving the molnupiravir uh, in case there is some mutagenic effect on sperm that can last up to three months, presumably. So I guess, again, it's just, you know, we need, if we're prescribing this drug, we, we need to be aware of the risks and benefits which need to be conveyed to the patient, plus the, you know, the specific instructions around uh, contraception. Not sure how we get on with the back pocket script with these things, but... Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's the... Another um, reason. Yeah, it's a um, so it's a, a, at the time of dispensing. If there's a the, the advance or back pocket scripts given, the 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 pharmacist would have a significant role in in emphasising that uh, to the patient. If you've given an advance script, although obviously um, you know an advance script when you so the, there's another another layer to give the information, isn't it? So when you produce the advance script. You, you should be telling people this. Um, That's right. And again, we've talked before about maybe printing out the um, patient information from the New Zealand formulary yep. um, and, and, and accompanying that with the prescription. Yeah, I, I've, I've found that a real, a real worry. Again, it's molnupiravir has, you know, very few drug interactions. Um, it's obviously much less efficacious than uh, Paxlovid, which again... There's there's debate about how efficacious that is now. You know, not straightforward, not no. straightforward. And people, the, there's a, a, a worry that people are putting it on the shelf and then, oh, I've got COVID, I'll just take it. Yeah. Um, and three months is a, is a long time to 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 remember. You know, to be to be doing this. So. And I think the I mean the other the other trap I guess is how well do we know our patients? So you might we might think do we need to give this advice to to our seventy year old. No heart patient who's eligible for for molnupiravir, oh, but in fact has a has a twenty five year old girlfriend we don't know about or whatever. So um. yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, there's um yeah, certainly um certainly I can you could you can't not mention it, can you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Number five is just um, again nothing greatly new, but in this in this time of very constrained access to. Um, psychotherapy and and psychological assistance at a time when um, patient distress is probably higher than usual. Uh, just a, a recommendation for looking at the Just a Thought website. It was recommended in a recent BPAC article on OCD mm. uh, as an online CBT resource, which can be considered while the patients are waiting access to formal psychotherapy. Um, but it's a, it's a well-evidence-based uh, online CBT service. It's got, it's got several courses. There's an equivalent in Australia, which we can also access called This Way Up, uh, which has a broader number of courses available, but they, they are um, not specifically Kiwi designed and orientated. So there, there may be a bit of Aussie material that comes into them, although I'm not sure how culturally different we are as countries. If you go, um, so the physician uh, can register on the site, it's free, it gives you access to the site and enables you to actually prescribe the course to your patient, formally prescribe the course to your patient. And it gives you, um, it gives you some hints here in the getting started guide, Aon, who's suitable to have it prescribed. And your role, um, you will get feedback uh, in terms of the patient completing the various modules of the course, but encouraging you as a clinician to keep in contact with your patient with a phone call or an email 
um, to keep encouraging them to uh, to complete the course, various course. Just as an example, there's I've just brought up the mixed uh, a link to the mixed depression and anxiety course, which is um, they're all all the courses are revolve around stories of these characters, uh, which are then that you follow the story through the various modules and there are there's reading to be done and and specific lessons uh, and activities to be undertaken with each module and it's hoped that the patient would complete the modules over three months maximum uh, and as they complete them online you will get notified uh, of the patient's progress um, so as i say evidence-based and i guess just another another tool in the toolkit in terms of trying to manage Patients, you know, patients coming in with moderate, mild to moderate, uh, or even moderate symptoms, anxiety, depression, etc. For those people who are, you know, digitally interested and connected, you know, looks looks really interesting. Supplementing it with GP level counselling feels like that would be a really good uh, option. I know we're all incredibly busy, but there's something about actually having a another limbic system that's connected to you and caring for you that makes a big difference i think yeah i mean I, I, absolutely i think i mean i saw someone the other day a young guy who was um had been referred after after threatening suicide and you know it was one of those long consultations but it was establishing establishing rapport and and basically saying you're not crazy you are going to get better these are the things you can do yeah um so i referred him referred him to this but also made a referral to um uh, you know, under the um, the PHO scheme for counselling, and yeah. by the time his appointment for counts for formal counselling arrived, he didn't need it. He just he was better. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I know you. Yeah, I think we sometimes um, overlook the power of those that care that you displayed uh, in that you know um, half an hour, three quarters of an hour that you that you gave to him. You know that I say that that actual personal connection with somebody who you know and and the the problem solving you know the the hope that comes from having some sort of a of a plan you know, a, a really big therapeutic interventions yeah and an acknowledgement of their distress i think yeah. and why they might feel that way the only problem is that that my stress levels of course tripled during the consultation i'm always available for counseling always available. <laughs> um so the last bits are really just um, housekeeping in some ways, um, and th these uh, issues have been have been publicised. But again, because we get bombarded with so much stuff, I'm not sure if um, if everyone reads everything that comes across the desk. But the the Ukrainian special policy, um, it's the immigration policy, allows Ukrainian families to sponsor a, a family who, who normally reside in the U Ukraine to come to New Zealand mm. um, without the usual immigration screens and and health checks etc so what the ministry of health is saying are that um or noting that U ukraine has the fourth highest tb incidence rate um, and, and multi-resistant tb as well multi yep, yeah multi-resistant tb um and just saying that all ukrainian uh, arrivals should be referred for chest x-ray screening many may have with symptoms but will have active tb uh, and need to be referred with high priority uh, to note on the x-ray form um, chest x-ray to exclude TB infection, high-risk patient, recently arrived Ukrainian refugee, eligible for publicly funded healthcare in New Zealand, yeah. and then notifying public health if, uh, um, or in fact, I think the, the radiology 
involve public health immediately, but TB is a notifiable disease, which we need to notify uh, if confirmed as well. Um, so really just uh, increasing that awareness as these um, this population enters New Zealand. I've, I haven't seen anyone in that capacity yet. No, but there's, um, uh, I think there were going to be several thousand potential there's that ant- anticipated extended family sort of drawing as well. Yeah, be- because they're coming in quickly, they're they're not subject to a pre-visa ap- uh, approval uh, medical check. And once they're here, that you can't uh, require people to have a-, a medical check. There's no there's no legal instrument which requires that of people. So it's a sort of the the hope is that people do understand and that they will come in and see a GP. And then, as you say, we part of that that check should be organising a chest X ray as a screening event for people who have come from the from Ukraine. Yeah, irrespective irrespective of symptoms. Yeah, yeah, because that would symptoms to be to be suspicious. Because the chest, I, I had to have a chest X ray coming to New Zealand. 30 odd years ago um from the uk um that's just part of your visa requirements but because of the urgency for these people they're they're, they're skipping that it's um and i think th- there's no they're not going to a uh an immigrant facility when they first no. arrive i don't think which would be another opportunity i think they're going straight to the um to the families that, that are sponsoring them so yeah yeah it's just an unusual situation yeah just solazoprol again, which we haven't been prescribing for a while, but is actually going to be delisted uh, from mid-2023. Uh, so again, I think there's still quite a few patients on solazoprol because historically there always were, and even though there mightn't be many new ones on, we've got to start thinking about um, what we're going to swap the existing solazoprol patients to. So um, Pharmac are actually looking to fund Ramapril, which has been used in Australia for years, I think, um, but just as another ACE option. Uh, and hopefully that'll be available from the end of this year if it's approved. I thought this was an issue because of um, a supply issue, but the uh, and they're just wanting to make sure that there wasn't a um, you know a sort of a, a monopoly basically on it. But actually, it's going to be it's going to be completely delisted. Are they are they stopping producing it or? I th- I, I'm not sure. I think again, yeah. I was I was I was under the impression that it was solely that we didn't want to be totally dependent on one ace in case there was a supply issue. But I think I think possibly the is a supply issue or because it's used so infrequently around most of the rest of the world it's you know that that might be the the issue of whether they're going to yeah. keep actually manufacturing it or not the oh yeah okay well maybe it's because it's got a monopoly then they're asking for more money and this is a pharmac response so but it was certainly um and new zealand was a was a way outlier in terms of the um the frequency of use of it compared with other races Okay. So, uh, I'm not sure why we got into that situation. Just the name, the allure of the name. Who knows? Or the, or the, yeah, whatever, whatever publicity. Effective marketing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the other Pharmac update: just the supplier of the lorazepam one milligram tablets uh, has a supply issue, uh, so we're being asked to avoid uh, starting new patients on lorazepam one milligram until it's resupplied, uh, and consider alternative treatments for patients who are using the one milligram tabs on a regular basis for longer periods. And the Pharmac clinical advisors suggest alternative funded treatments uh, may include diazepam and clonazepam uh, or temporarily transitioning patients to half of a 2.5 milligram tablet, although that's obviously slightly more than than one milligram. Right. Uh, and that's really it. Yeah. 
So there's a, an alternative for you to take to pop partway through your long consultation. That's right. yeah. <laughs> pop, pop, I, w- I wouldn't take two point five. Otherwise, I probably probably sort of the, the afternoon would be um, uh, probably yeah. That's right. Well, I, have, um, I have had I have I have actually yawned in front of a patient once, and the patient noticed and said, "Am I boring you?" Oh, <laughs> I've told you I've told you that I I fell asleep in front of a patient once. Then um, uh, after a long weekend on call on a warm Monday afternoon, um, so um, yeah, I, that was a long time ago, and um, and I have to say, the patient as I fell asleep, the patient said, um, "Oh, doctor, how do you manage to say exactly the right thing at exactly the right time?" <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea what it was that I, I sort of muttered in my. Um, it's not. You uh, not think about what it might have been. No, no. But um, no, that was not not my finest hour. Not my finest hour. Oh well, thanks, Dave. That's really brilliant. Um, so the uh, lorazepam, uh, TB, um, C, C, um, the um, CBD uh, advice. The that really interesting thing about pediatric antibiotics and. Um, uh, immunity. What making sure that we're putting our uh, vaccine and that the, our staff know to put the vaccine in the right place, monopiravir and and contraception. And then you know you, you kicked us off with um, nose bleeding and uh, the use of um, tranexamic acid, which in rivaroxaban and dabigatran, but presumably we could use it in other um, contexts as well. It might be an addition to, as you say, soak the the gauze in um, tranexamic acid rather than uh, adrenaline. Um, yeah, just just a few interesting bits and pieces. So, uh, yeah, no, you're a star, Dave. Thank you. Excellent. No, thanks for that. And we'll see you next month. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.